and I have Mark with me. He's um, actually beside me. He <laughs> might be a bit on the quiet side, but <laughs> he's really, fine. I'm really shy tonight about me. I don't know. Maybe it's just your voice is gone. It does sounds a little bit softer than usual. Mm. It might what be because happened? of uh, all those times when you're really dying. Yeah, that's true. Maybe your sort of your spirit's not quite within you. <laughs> I don't know what this wee thing means, but uh, Leslie's voice is, is red and my voice is barely green. That means oh, anything to that's anyone. because I'm loud as fuck. That's why she I don't know why. Stop screaming. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this week we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper. But before we do that, we've got the Digger. That's a copy of the Digger with Brian Lamon on the front cover. But Mark's going to um, give you a little snippet of Scottish crime in the Sheriff Courts, and um, we've got. Crime from the Sheriff Court in Glasgow and court cases from the Hamilton Sheriff Court, which is more near our neck of the woods, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a wee so, treat. Yeah. It's a wee treat for you. There yeah, you I'm just go. Gonna pick some that you've yeah. There's quite a lot of, uh, of people who've committed crimes. So this is what the kind of crimes that are going on. Well, they took place last year, I think, probably. <laughs> but they're still to get to court, some of them. Um, I, I've not read through these, so oh. some of them may be more shocking than, than I think no, they are. I'm, I'm not shocked. I mean, we're talking about Jack the Ripper later. That's going to be shocking. Uh, I don't think there's any Jack the Rippers in this digger, is there? Let's see. <laughs> I can't see any Jack the Rippers. I can see a J. All right, well, let's talk about J. Jack the Ripper, maybe called J. We don't know his okay. name. So maybe Jack the Ripper. Uh, he is accused of assaulting a man and then robbing him. Um, he struck the man on the head with a bottle. Causing him to fall to the ground. <laughs> then, when he fell on the ground, he repeatedly kicked and stamped on the man until he could get his cat off of him and his sunglasses. He's so <laughs> he was robbing him for his cap and sunglasses. I take it he means his baseball cap or are, are they Neds? I don't know. It might have been a baseball cap, maybe a beanie. Well, actually, it could have been a flat cap. It you never know. Been. You know, like Jack and Victor. Can... That man. It's not about his cat now. Is that it? Uh, oh, there's loads. We've got a lady oh. called... Do you mean is that all No, is that all for that that's one? That's all that Jay did. There, nice there's no, no... Is he found guilty or what? Uh, or is he just at trial? He was just at trial. All right, okay. He's accused. Right. Uh, we've got a woman called Diane. <laughs> I wouldn't. And he's accused of permanently disfiguring another woman. Oh, dear. By throwing her through rose of liquid on her. Could be oh. like bleach or something. Uh, she approached her on... Allender Street. Allender Street sounds familiar to me. I think my grandparents might, one of my grandparents might have lived on Allender Street at one point. No, is it, is it in the East End of Glasgow? It is. I, I bet they, I, I recognise that street. 
I don't know the name of it. Not that, but, yeah. This story makes me not want to go there. Okay. She approached the woman with a glass bottle. She smashed it over the woman's head and it turned out the glass bottle was full of a corrosive liquid, oh. which poured all over her head and body. That's absolutely horrific. That's terrible. I was thinking these would be funnier than. No. <laughs> <laughs> not making me laugh. Uh, I say we're laughing. There you go. There's a man called Bratchard. He was carrying a knife. He's believed to have been. Carrying a blade, that's just the same thing. He was carrying a knife, he's believed to be carrying a blade. A blade. He didn't have a reasonable excuse for doing so. All right, so he was just wandering around with a knife in his Right, so for people out there, it's pretty much, I mean, if you're caught with a knife without a reasonable excuse, like some people would say, oh, I I use this knife for my fishing. Yeah. Where's your fishing gear then? Uh, But if you're just wandering about with a knife in your hands then. Yeah, well, even a butter knife, or is it if it's a sharp knife? Well, if you've got a butter knife, knife. <laughs> if you've got a butter knife, it's not going to do much damage, is it? <laughs> I remember, I mean, because uh, you're not allowed to drink in the streets, you're not allowed to drink alcohol in the streets in Scotland either, um, because we can't be trusted with alcohol, apparently. So it was a really sunny day, and I went to see a former friend, um, and we were just sat in the he was in a flat, so it was in a graveyard, or like I said, well, it was a graveyard because it's next to an old church. We were just sitting there having some wine underneath his flat, and these cops came in and said, oh, you do know you're not supposed to drink alcohol? And he just went dramatically, I live up there. <laughs> and, he was, and I was like, and then oh, I just panicked. I panicked and said, look, it's not like we're, we're sitting here drinking Bucky or anything. We're having a nice civilised glass of red wine with our picnic. And the cops just went, Aye, all right then. I just walked <laughs> off. <laughs> I feel like that could have gone one or two ways. Yeah. You have said, all right then. Or taser, Jake. Oh, well, yeah, well. Police, you end up getting. Yeah. Uh, well, we look at something from Hamilton. Okay, Maybe Hamilton. More comedic, Maybe. Maybe. Uh, we've got a man called Shoe. That's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> he made threats while holding a knife. Oh. It's alleged that he shouted abuse and tried to hide the blade during a disturbance at an address in Hart Hill. That's a bad place. That's a bad place. Yeah. No offence to our listeners. Oh, Hart there. Hill, you don't want to end up there. It's like fucking ghetto town. Yeah. Right, anyway. <laughs> uh, he's said to have been freed on bail in relation to another matter just three days before the shouting of the abuse and the knife wounding. It's mm. also claimed that he failed to attend his own trial. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. We've got a Leanne. Was there a Leanne in another page? Was the other woman read a Leanne? A Leanne? No, she was a Diane. Diane and Leanne. Ooh. What'd she do? Uh, Leanne approached a police officer, told him that she was infected with COVID-19 and then spat on him. Leanne. Leanne. Come on. Lovely <laughs> told you. Thank you. I mean, according to the Boris Johnson, that's fine. We can have parties. As long as she said that she wasn't aware she was breaking the law, then it's absolutely fine. And she spat on him for less than nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say later away with it. Plus, she's spitting on a cop, so... Yeah, I love this bit. <laughs> it's alleged that uh, after spitting on him, she shouted abuse at him, then struggled violently and refused to get in the police car, and then struck her own head repeatedly against the wall. Oh, dear. Something wrong with her. She then tried to bite another police officer. Hmm. She rabid? I mean, possibly. <laughs> I feel like you know this name as well. Yeah. Declan. I'm going to go with Declan, but... Declan McElroy, I said. You can come for me if you want. Don't do it, Declan. Um, what's he up to? He's from Motherwell. No, he stabbed a man in Motherwell. He might not be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he severely disfigured him and gave oh. him permanent injuries. Okay. What? 
Why? So he stabbed him, then he punched him, and then the man tried to flee, so he chased him and then struck him repeatedly on the body with a knife. Mm. He's also accused when he was elected of being in illegal possession of another knife and committing other crimes related to this two days before. See, the theme is that it's basically knife crime. Yeah, which yeah, I mean, which was a big problem for a long time in Glasgow, but apparently most of it's been like stopped or it's gone down dramatically. But reading that, you would yeah, think so. Or crimes with acids, which is pretty grim. Yeah. But yeah, speaking of which, let's get on to the old Jack the Ripper, no, which. Right. When we were comparing it to the Zodiac, because it's another killer, like probably the most famous ones, that have never been identified or caught, although there's shitloads of suspects, and not all of them are men, some of them could be women. And I like the, the women one, because it actually sounds very logical when you think about it, but so what do you know about Jack the Ripper in general, Mark? I really don't, it's kind of what you were saying about the Zodiac last week, like I don't actually know that much weirdly about Jack the Ripper and I think for the same reasons as what you said about the Zodiac that because it's something that everybody knows about I don't know I'm always just weird that way where if like everybody's mm. into something I'm not into it so yeah you kind of think you already know all there is to know about Jack the Ripper really like he had five victims but they're those are just known as the can this is the word I can't say can you say it can I'm not canonical canonical which means they're just the official ones All of that they think the Ripper. the Ripper, which relates to the victims being sex mm. workers. Like Not all of them were sex workers, though. That's a stereotype. Well, all the information I know, and this isn't a joke, is from that time that we did Hammer Horror, and I did uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was Jack the Ripper. Yeah, that's right. So, well, didn't we know, but that does tie into one of the theories that Jack the Ripper was Jill the Ripper, not. A male, which I, I think fascinating. Well, the murders took place. The, the five known victims took place between eighteen eighty eight and eighteen ninety one, and there's a question mark there because they're not entirely sure the exact dates. But then you think there would be exact dates because it would have been reported in the news. So I don't know. Yeah. Unless they're saying that maybe they found victims from 1891 that they thought might have been the Ripper, the the Ripper but not officially. Maybe that. I was thinking maybe it was reported in the news, but like mm. it wasn't properly recorded because if the later ones were sex workers, then people might not. It's weird because I've, I've been to London a few times and I've been to Bow, which is probably near where some of the murders took place, um, which is quite a cockney if you can call it that, if there's any cock, actual true cockney places left in London. There must be. I don't know, I heard that all the cockneys are actually being driven out by, you know, all the rich people that live oh. in, because they, they're priced out. Like, really actual working-class cockneys are having to leave to the outskirts of London or beyond, so the cockneys are going to die out, and there's just mockneys left. I'm talking about, like, they're... Like a species of. <laughs> I don't know any proper cockneys apart from that one guy we met at Bow. Remember when we had the lock in in the pub? Yes. He was a proper cockney. Is Bimini Bombulas? <laughs> <laughs> what? Like the Chamber Creek extravaganza, Bimini Bombulas. You don't know Bimini Bombulas? No. Oh, what are you talking about? 
am I going mental so here? Yeah, what, what are you talking about? Sounds like you've made that up. If they are a cockney, but if you don't know who they are, you won't Fish Bash Bosch, I believe. Fish Bash Bosch, Bernie Bomb, but yeah, that sounds cockney. And obviously, that's not their Oh, have a butcher's birth name. Do they talk in cockney Raymond slang? They do, and they would definitely say you have a butcher's. I know, I know a leaf Raymond slang. Like your Nat King Cole. Oh, yeah, it's got Cole. him, Ben, and there was the first person to come off. Really? Right, okay. Well, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, because she's on Drag Race. She was on Drag or they were on Drag Race. They, oh, they, sorry, I didn't. I, I, I thought, see, I'm, I'm stupid. It's like when you said they, uh, it was like a group of people, not just <laughs> one person. Sorry, I forget the non binary thing. I'm going to Google <laughs> I don't know why. Is she a cockney? I'm not sorry. Are they a cockney or are they just mockney? Mm, I mean, mm. they're definitely working class. Right. So if their accent is cockney, which I think it is, then. We're going off on a tangent here. Bimini Bob Bullash could be Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like the thought of um, Jack the Ripper going around in like pink latex. Sounds cool. But I mm. think that would stand out a bit. I don't think they are a cockney, so this is not. Oh, oh well, what a waste of time. Uh, okay, so back to Jack the Ripper. So he, it was rendered at the White Chapel, East End of London, in 1888, which was a pretty grim place to live at the time. Um, in both criminal case files and the contemporary journalistic accounts, the killer was initially called the White Chapel murderer or Lever Apron, which I, I think Lever Apron sounds pretty gnarly. It's a bit like you know Lever Face. Lever Apron sounds like a bit of a serial killer name. Didn't Jack the Ripper? Chapel murderer. It's boring. 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 But I remember reading a book about the victims of the Ripper and surprisingly not a lot of them were full-time sex workers. Some of them came from respectable backgrounds and just ended up under bad circumstances. A bit like like nowadays, some people end up, you know, divorcing or domestic violence. There's a lot of domestic violence going on. And, you know, you end up having to lose your home, having to leave and then struggling for money, especially back in those days as a woman, you know, you're considered your husband's property, so he could do what he wants with you. Um, some of the women that they weren't always prostitutes, they were respectable women, but they were just brought low by circumstances. And sometimes they had to resort to sex work just to make ends meet. And some of them were alcoholics because that well. they hung around pubs. Be able to, or it would be unlikely to be able to make money. Not really, no. Sort of cast out by your family. Especially when you're You'd have menial jobs like like making matchboxes, which is shit. No, no. And especially a lot of these women turned to drink as well. So I guess they spent a lot of their money on booze, you know, a bit like, you know, to get through their pain or like how shit their life is. I guess a lot of people just turned to drink. Back then, and you, know, you get your pure fucking snooty people that look down on them and go, oh, well, well, maybe if they didn't spend all their money on booze. You know, like the, like these days where they say, well, if they say they're so poor and have to go to food banks, why do they have big screen TVs? Like, yes. we're not, like, poor people aren't allowed to have a bit of entertainment. They're supposed to just sit in a dark room yeah. with candles. So, but at least they have a tin of beans. <laughs> at least they have a fucking tin of beans. Or you could live off a big packet of pasta. Like, 
eating pasta every day is not a nutritional thing, especially if you've got kids. You can't just feed them pasta with uh, like minimal of vegetables. It's like, like the stupid middle class thing where like middle class or newspapers yeah. and raggy shit newspapers as well. Uh-huh. That thing where they go to like supermarkets and buy stuff that's yeah. just stuff for that day. And mm. they're like, I managed to make a family meal for 27 pence. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't do that in your everyday life, no, you would you? No way. No. Because you don't know what you're going to get at the supermarkets. But I suppose they'll say, well, you're poor, you don't have beggars can't be choosers, you know? <laughs> and they didn't even have supermarkets back then, never mind. Food no, that's true. So they definitely had yeah. limited options. The only, the name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written by an individual claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. The letter is widely believed to have been a hoax and may have been written by journalists in an attempt to heighten interest in the story and increase their newspaper circulation. Again, kind of similar to the Zodiac. Is it? Like, well, there's that letter that I was saying, I think, it yeah. a hoax and then the reason that he's called the Zodiac is because of a letter that he probably did write, to be fair, mm. but that was spread among different newspapers. Yeah, the sensational, like, finding all these murders, he probably... I don't know whether the media was more wide, like getting more of a an audience back then in the nineteenth century, whereas like more people had access to the news than ever, and they probably thought, "Brilliant, we're going to milk this for all it's worth." Like maybe it was the start of the sort of sensationalist tabloids yeah. that you would get now. Um, I suppose you could compare it to like the Wests and how mental they all went printing about like Fred and Rose West and stuff, the gruesome details and everything, and people just laugh it up. Like, yeah. the more gore, the better. Which is weird as well, because yeah. people who <laughs> are interested in true crime, right? like, other people seem to think that's an awful, mm-hmm. like, your average person, or your average pedogram person, like, that's such a disgusting thing to be interested in. But then, yeah. you know, like, most people like reading the horrific details of what people have done. There was also a, a letter that was um, signed off from hell, which is another famous letter, which is what inspired the movie with John Depp. It's called From Hell. It was also, I believe, a, a graphic novel it started off as. Um, and their theory was that what is it was the Queen's physician, the royal physician, that was killing women but... on behalf of Prince Eddie, who is the grandchild of Queen Victoria, and there was a whole like, and there was a, like he was supposedly dating a Catholic, poor, like a Catholic woman who lived in East End, and he had a secret child with her. And because like that's a big scandal, especially since she's Catholic as well, that they covered it up by basically they found him, took him back to the royal household, then they put her in a mental asylum, gave her a lobotomy so she couldn't remember anything and took her with her child. I don't know what they did with her kids. And then to cover all of that up, his um, physician murdered all his women. Sorry if I've spoiled the movie for you, but, that's, <laughs> but that was based on a true rumour that someone came up with, like one of the suspects was Prince Eddie himself, rather also, than his... Based on the current royal family, we do know that the royal family does like to cover up Prince's terrible, terrible crimes. The thing so. is, Prince Eddie was also supposed to be rumoured to be a homosexual as well, because he was caught in a Turkish bathhouse or something. Which, I don't know what, and apparently he was killing women 
as a revenge against him getting syphilis or I don't know. I'll read about it. Like there's more to <laughs> it. It doesn't really, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. I don't think it was him. Um, but I think it's quite, I mean, people probably love to think of the royals as evil and maybe, you know, scandalous. Well, look at Prince Andrew. I mean, yes. he's been up to some pretty shady shit. Right, absolutely horrific. Oh, yeah, and his mum's still, lit, you know, basically. He for, yeah, <laughs> he should be in the digger. <laughs> He might not be a grass, but he is a fucking monster. He's a monster. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the From Hell letter, let's see what, what that... Um, so it was known as a Lusk letter. It was a letter sent alongside half of a preserved human kidney Lovely. to the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilante. Now, didn't the Zodiac send a letter with a part of a jacket, the blood yeah, yeah, jacket? Yeah, I one that may have been a copycat, but mm. maybe the actual the letter they sent, they like tore a strip to off prove of it was the him. taxi driver. Oh, was it taxi driver? Right, okay. So when they murdered the taxi driver, they tore a strip off his shirt, but it was soaked in his blood. Where did they get the human kidney from? I mean, it could it, I suppose it could have been a doctor or someone taking the piss, or it could have been from the ripper themselves. We don't know. They sent the letter to the chairman of the Whitechapel Vig- uh, Vigilance Committee. I was going to say Vigilante Committee, but. I think there was a vigilante committee um, formed to try and catch the Ripper because he felt like the police weren't doing enough I mean, to catch him. So. <laughs> probably. Again, that happens now. So yeah, and then they attack like paediatricians instead of paedophiles because <laughs> they're <laughs> <laughs> The author of the letter claimed to be the unidentified serial killer known as Jack the Ripper who had murdered and mutilated at least four women. Um, okay. Uh the letter was postmarked on the 15th of October 1888 and was received by Lusk the following day. An examination of the kidney revealed the individual from whom the organ originated had suffered from Bright's disease. What's Bright's disease? I'm going down this rabbit hole. It's a historical classification of kidney diseases that are described in modern medicine as acute or chronic nephritis characterised by swelling and the presence of so I think they just took that kidney from a dead person really yeah like, like they had that somebody yeah that's not from a victim not dead I'm just kind of like quite fucked up that you're like somebody's dead I'm going to cut their kidney out <laughs> <laughs> so police press and public received many letters claiming to be from the Whitechapel murderer Investigators at one stage having to deal with an estimated 1,000 letters related to the case, which is similar to the Zodiac, whereby everyone was calling in. Yeah, trying to. Well, there was loads of people calling in, and then there was a like, slew of responses to newspapers because yeah. there was so many people trying to solve all this crap. Yeah, and everyone's an armchair detective these days. Cryptids. Not cryptids. Cryptics. Cypher. Is Cypher? Yes, Cypher. Yeah. Um, but opinions remain divided with regards to the letter's authenticity. Uh, let's see, what does the letter actually say? So the letter reads, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sore, as in maybe he means sir, but he's bit misspelled it, a bit like the Zodiac used to misspell words like Christmas. Christmas yeah. uh, I send you half the kidney with no why at the end. I took from one woman, preserved it for you, to her piece. I fried and ate it. It was very nice. <laughs> I may send you the bloody knife 
that took it out. If oh, you only if you only wait a while longer, signed uh catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. So I don't think that's a real letter because I think there's a picture of it. Because he's like a highly skilled oh he's got lovely handwriting. Yeah, he does, but is it been deliberately misspelled to sound to make him sound like a yeah, no, killer? Because I was going to say that because obviously they knew what they were doing with the mm-hmm. you would assume they were educated, but that is some beautiful handwriting. So yeah, maybe they're just pretending they can't write, but they can't stop themselves doing cursive. In fact, it was the gay prince. <laughs> you think it was him? Well, homosexuals. We just can't stop ourselves doing. The other, there was a postcard that said "Saucy Jackie." <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and the Dear Boss Letter. Um, the handwriting in the Dear Boss Letter and Saucy Jackie postcard are marked similar, but the handwriting of the From Hell letter is dissimilar. It was delivered to us personally without reference to the police or to the British government, which could indicate animosity towards Lusk or the local Whitechapel community of which he was a member. Hmm. There's so much into this. Like they've looked into the calligraphy and linguistic analysis of it, but it's, it's not going to really get us any closer to getting to the like. No, because like again, when we were talking about Zodiac last week, when they did the mm. handwriting analysis of him and said it was a perfect match to that guy's dad, and then it turned out that they were actually doing it to a random priest who can possibly have done it, <laughs> yeah. and they said it was a perfect match. So. Yeah. Um. So, who were the ladies that were supposedly killed? So, and um, um, there was a series of eleven brutal murders and committed in Whitechapel between eighteen eighty eight and eighteen ninety one. But they weren't the police weren't able to connect all the killing conclusively to the murders of eighteen eighty eight. So, the five victims that are considered canonical as victims of the Ripper, are Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Um, and their murders are between... Yeah, well, she was Irish, um, but she worked in a... When I read about her, she actually was a proper sex worker. Like, she was, like, a known beauty, but she lit, she trained in a, bro- a high-class brothel in Paris. And then when she was sick of that, she decided to go back to London. Like she married a guy, um, but she was still sort of sex trafficking women, like to yeah. become prostitutes. But she lived in a little, a dingy little single room. So she went from a high class brothel in Paris to a shitty room in London, married to some, I don't know, some random guy. And yeah, she was like recruiting women to basically go out and sex work. For her, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what circumstances were for her. Why she was maybe she was yeah, on like, a run or something was she like protecting the women or was she mm-hmm. abusing them or one of the victims I think was maybe Catherine Eddowes or Mary Ann Nichols came from Norway, but she was a prostitute in Norway and she moved to London as well. But there's there's so much into them. But um, yeah, so those are all the victims. One of the victims, Catherine. Yeah, Catherine Eddowes, she didn't get gutted as much as the other ones because someone must have disturbed the Ripper while he was doing his work because she only had, like, her throat slashed, but not much else was done to her. Mm. So he must have ran off. Did he cut all the sex organs out or was yeah. that just in? Okay. He, he basically would... 
he would display them in a really like undignified, sexualized way. Um, their legs would be spread out on display, and he would cut out their because he thought that he, he obviously some sort of butcher or surgeon because he was quite precise on so knew which ones to to take, like their ovaries and their their uterus usually, and he would display some of their innards over their shoulders oh, <laughs> and he was just putting them on display all, no but he always <clears throat> slit their, he always slit their throats first before he did that or she did that um it sounds like some sort of mad performance art doesn't <laughs> she art like to me like i know it sounds fucked up but it was the way like especially mary kelly she got it worst of all like there's some really horrific photographs like like okay mark right here is uh a police illustrate. I know listeners you can't see this, but as you can see, yeah. her face is severely mutilated here. That is Catherine Eddowes. Alright, so she did get it quite bad. I and mean, this yeah, is that's... how she was like her face was completely mutilated. Uh, her nose was cut off. Um her legs were splayed out and then her basically she was ripped from from uh, <laughs> from <Gun. boobs. laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the way up her chest and her, her intestines were taken out and put spung over her left shoulder. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not all right, is it? No. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's kind of fucked up work of art, that is, to me anyway. Um, so, and Mary Jane Kelly, I don't know if you can see, I've, I'll, I don't know if I've got a picture of her. I'm sure I've got it somewhere. Yeah, it's really fucking horrific. That's oh how God. she was found. And you can actually see her bone. Like, she's totally, like, that's yeah. the worst one yet that they've found. And they don't know why she got it so, like, violent. Absolutely. Yeah, butchered her. Upper, what's that? Like, her it's upper left leg is completely removed. It, parts of her thigh that he'd taken off has been laid on the table next to her. And they are cut, like, butcher's cuts. Yeah. And again, her legs are like spread out as if she's, you know, in a sexualized oh position. I just realised that what I was actually describing well, is her right leg because she's so badly mutilated. I didn't even know that her left leg was her leg. Yeah, that's her leg there. Oh. <sighs> I can't even see her in her eyes. And the thing is, her husband only managed to recognise her because he recognised her eyes. But how would he, well, her actual eyes were taken out of her face. I don't even know how you would recognise someone you'll your like, like, Well maybe are these sure pick some off the floor? Oh. Oh, God. Oh, God. God. So yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Um where have I I'm, I'm kinda of, there's so much into the, the ripper here. Um uh we are okay, so some murders. I was just trying to see, like, so the first one was Mary Ann Nichols, who was discovered about three forty a.m. on Friday the thirty-first of August, eighteen eighty-eight, in Bucks Row, which is now Durward Street, Whitechapel. She'd last been seen alive approximately one hour before the discovery of her body by a Mrs. Emily Holland, with whom she had previously shared a bed at a common lodging house in Frost Street, Spitalfield. Spitalfield is now like a really trendy place yeah. for all the fucking hipsters go. Um, <laughs> walking in the direction of Whitechapel Road, her throat was severed by two deep cuts, 
one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Her vagina had been stabbed twice and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound, causing her bowels to protrude. Several other incisions inflicted to both sides of her abdomen had also been caused by the same knife. Each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward thrusting manner. <laughs> I'm just doing the thrusting action there. <laughs> One week later, on Saturday the 8th of September 1888, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered at approximately 6am near the steps to the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. As in the case of Marianne Nichols, the throat was severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open, with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder and another section of skin and flesh, plus her small intestines being removed and placed above her right shoulder. <laughs> Chapman's autopsy also revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed. Uh, at the inquest into Chapman's murder, Elizabeth Long described having seen Chapman standing outside 29 Hanbury Street around 5.30am in the company of a dark-haired man wearing a brown deerstalker hat. I mean, is she just describing Sherlock Holmes yeah. there? Has she read too many yeah. <laughs> like Holmes novels and just thought it was him? Or was it a guy cosplaying as Sherlock Holmes? Like, were deerstalkers popular back then? Oh, yeah, they were, I don't know. In a dark overcoat of a shabby genteel appearance. According to this eyewitness, the man had asked Chapman the question, Will you? To which Chapman had applied, Yes. I mean, will you come with me or whatever? I'm assuming she was maybe on the game a little bit. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were both killed in the early morning hours of Sunday, the 30th of September, 1888. Stride's body was discovered at approximately 1am in Dutfield Yard off Berner Street and Whitechapel. The cause of death was a single clear-cut incision measuring six inches across her neck, which had severed her left cartoid artery in her trachea before terminating beneath her right jaw. All right, so it was Elizabeth Stride that was the one that maybe got... Yeah, disturbed the killer or something and he never got to finish his work or her work. The absence of any further mutilations to her bodies led to uncertainty as to whether Stride's murder was committed by the Ripper or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Several witnesses later informed police they'd seen Stride in the company of a man and close to Berner Street on the evening of the 29th of September and the early hours of the 30th of September, but each gave differing descriptions some said that their companion was fair, others dark. Some said he was shabbily dressed, others well dressed. I mean, what can you do? Also, as well, <laughs> she's a sex worker. She might have had several clients in the one night. So That's true. People yeah. be describing different guys. Mm. Edel's body was found in a corner of Mitre Square in the city of London, three quarters of an hour after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Stride. Her throat was severed from ear to ear and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep and jagged wound. Oh, we've covered that one, haven't we not? Or is it the same thing? Ugh. Okay. Her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder, with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and her left arm. The left kidney and major part of Edel's uterus had been removed, and her face had been disfigured, with her nose severed 
her cheeks slashed and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and a half, respectively, vertically in size, through each of her eyelids. Oh, Christ. Now, this guy, or woman, seriously has a problem with women, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, he wants to completely destroy them. Their face, their dignity, everything about it is, like, so violent towards... I'm intrigued to hear when the suspects are like the possible mm. women because yeah, I can't imagine. Not that I mean, I'm saying that as well. I mean, any man. Well, it that. could be a jealous but, woman, couldn't it? Yeah, but, um, I don't think even if you're driving mad with jealousy because your husband's constantly using sex workers that you would do that. Like, that's not. Or maybe it's to cover our tracks to sort of think, well, no woman would ever do that. And that's why nobody would ever suspect a woman would do that. So that's good for you, I think. Um, the apex of which pointed towards Ero's eye had also been carved upon each of her cheeks and a section of the oracle and lobe of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the post-mortem upon Ero's body stated his opinion these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. So it's fast work. Yeah. I would have thought that would take me a long <laughs> time to do. <laughs> I mean, I've never tried to carve up a human being yeah. or anything for that matter. A local cigarette salesman named Joseph Lorette Lowend had passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder and he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Edo's. Lowend's companions were unable to confirm his description. The murders of Stride and Edo's ultimately became known as the double event. So he did it twice. He did, like, it took place on the same night. Yeah. Did one and then did the other. But he was obviously interrupted with one, so then he had to complete his job later. His maybe like he had to because he couldn't complete the first one properly. He had to go and do someone else that night because he like because he gets gets off on it or something. Yeah. Like you have to complete. He's a completist. He has to do the full mutilation, so he speaks. It's fucking mad. <laughs> Did the zodiac do anything like that? No. Not obviously he didn't rip them up, but... No, because all of his were quite right. spaced apart. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, successful doesn't seem like the right word to use, but... He... This is interesting. A section of Edo's bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement in Goulston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55am. A chalk inscription upon the wall directly above this piece of apron read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. This graffito became known as the Goulston Street Graffito. The message appeared to imply that a Jew or Jews in general were responsible for the series of murders, but it's unclear whether the graffito was written by the murderer upon dropping the section of apron or was merely incidental and nothing to do with the case. Such graffiti were commonplace in Whitechapel. Police Commissioner Charles Warren feared that the graffito might spark anti-Semitic riots and ordered the writing washed away before dawn. I think that was just some fud that was trying to blame the Jews on the murder. Yeah. Even if it was the murder, they were like, yeah. write this and people would be like, oh, it's a Jew, rather than it's who, yeah. is, who was probably not a Jew. Yeah, and people would do that nowadays. Like, yeah. it definitely was. Uh, the extensively mutilated and disemboweled body of Mary Jane Kelly was discovered lying on the bed in a single room where she lived at 13 Millers Court or off Dorset Street, Spitalfields at 10.45am on Friday the 9th of November 1888. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition. I'd say that's foobar. 
fucked up beyond all recognition. <laughs> I'd also say it's an art it's, description based on attribution. Yeah, it's horrific. I mean, look it up if you, you don't mind. I mean, thank God it's not in colour, for fuck's sake. That would be horrendous. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. Yeah. So her, uh, her throat had been severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys and one breast had been placed beneath her head and other viscera from her body placed beside her foot about the bed and sections of her abdomen and thighs upon a bedside table. The heart was missing from the crime scene. So you've taken the heart hmm. as a trophy, do you think? Or maybe what if that other letter about the guy that ate the kidney was actually true, maybe he just kept bits of organs to eat as well. Oh, that's fucked. Each of the canonical five murders was per... I can't read. <laughs> were perforated at night on or close to a weekend, either at the end of a month or a week or so after. The mutilations became increasingly severe as a series of murders proceeded, except for that of Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. Nichols was not missing any organs. Chapman's uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina were taken. Eddowes had her uterus and left kidney removed and her face mutilated, and Kelly's body was extensively eviscerated. Um, yeah, she was absolutely butchered. So, yeah, that's where they think the main Ripper um, victims were. But there were other, like, murders after that. So, although Mary Jane Kelly is considered to be the Ripper's final victim, it's assumed that the crimes ended because of the culprit's death, imprisonment, institutionalisation or emigration, because there's been, like, rumours about H.H. H. Holmes being possibly the Ripper and... Um, other, pe- other men emigrating to America hmm. and went on to commit crimes over there and they were caught, but we don't know that for sure. Um, the Whitechapel Murders Files details another four murders that occurred after the canonical five. Those of Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, the Pynchon Street Parcel and Francis Coles. There's a picture of Frances Coles there. She is obviously dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was found with her throat cut under a railway arch in Whitechapel on the 13th of February 1891. There's so many um, of our like victims or like murders, but then I, I suppose there could be copycat murders or there could be just like around yeah. that time. It just could have been a lot of and if you were Bad people. planning to kill somebody, you might try to kill them in the same way that the referee killed people to mm. throw people off you. Possibly. Torso killer as well. Because uh, he just found like a, a torso and some of the body parts were found like in a bin somewhere or like nearby. Mm. Like a couple of legs <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> if he, I mean, we could go on all night. There's so much with the, the Ripper. Um Let's see. So there's theories about the identity of Jack the Ripper. I'm going to go into this one. We've got a whole big list of them here. <laughs> I'm going to go Jill the Ripper, right? Because this one really, I think, is very interesting. Um, and I've never heard this video before. So it could be a woman that it was postula- postulated by Inspector Aberline, who's one of the most famous inspectors I've in the case. Yeah, he was in the film. Yeah, from hell. Yeah. Um, 
According to Donald McCormick, author of The Identity of Jack the Ripper, published in 1959, Aberline raised the theory in a conversation with his mentor, Dr. Thomas Dutton, after the murder of Mary Kelly. Testimony given by Caroline Maxwell, who lived in the area, was central to the argument. The time of death for Mary Kelly was estimated to be between 3.30 and 4.30 a.m. on the morning of Friday, November 9th, 1888. This time seems fit not only due to medical evidence such as the temperature of the body and stiffness of the joints, but correlates as well with the majority of the testimony given by those who claim to have either seen or heard her the night of her death. Majority, however, does not include the testimony of Mrs. Caroline Maxwell. So she testified to have seen Mary Kelly not once but twice, several hours after doctors believed she had died. The first occasion was between 8 and 8.30 a.m. I need to interrupt already. I just like the idea that you're like... Yeah, I'm confused at that. Did you happen to see her? I didn't just happen to see her. I happened to see her twice. Uh, (laughs) And it was after she was supposed to have died as well. (laughs) But there might be an explanation for that. Ghost. Well, no. The logical explanation is the person who killed Mary Kelly took her clothes and put them on. So... She might have thought she was seeing Mary so Kelly. Bad in a bomb <laughs> she can't resist the fashion moment. Oh God! <laughs> that was the case. So <laughs> <laughs> she said that she thought she was looking quite ill. Mrs. Maxwell stated she was sure at the time because her husband returned from work around 8 each morning. The second time was an hour later when Mrs. Maxwell claimed she saw Kelly speaking with a man outside the Britannia public house, which is a pub. Mrs. Maxwell vividly described the clothes she saw on the women. Not that many people she saw in the women believed to be Kelly that morning as a dark shirt, velvet bodice and a maroon coloured shawl. When asked if she had ever seen Kelly in this outfit, she replied that she definitely remembered her wearing the shawl. So just the shawl then. Okay. I mean, so, I feel like the logical explanation mm, is just she saw two different women that had a shawl. Yeah. <laughs> so Aberline had no reason to distrust the witness. She continued to adamantly adhere to the times and descriptions she'd given. The problem perplexed him and he later approached Dutton about it, asking, do you think it could be a case of not Jack the Ripper, but Jill the Ripper? <laughs> he based the brunt of the argument on the fact that it was possible that the killer dressed up in Kelly's clothes in order to disguise herself, therefore accounting for Mrs. Maxman. But what's to say it wasn't a guy that did that? Yeah. The guy could put on women's clothes. And... I've got on women's clothes. And I know, like I say, people are probably not going to think that a woman did the crime so vicious as the, the Ripper's crimes were, so stands to reason that if you dress as a woman, then you're not going to be suspected in a place like Whitechapel. I do think, though, that I'm really liking that they're just focusing on could it have been then based on the idea of clothing they were wearing. Like, one summer, mm-hmm. Mandy's skirt, I guess. But I find it weird that people were like, it was too much. Yeah, but there's... I've definitely seen her wear that skirt. There's more context to it, because... Dutton answered that he believed it was doubtful, but if it were a woman committing the crimes, the only capable of doing so would be a midwife, because midwives were often covered in blood. So, you know, for... It's and they would have medical training, which yeah, a lot of women wouldn't they have would. access to back then. And they'd be looking at a lot of vaginas. So they knew, <laughs> they knew their way around a uterus. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I mean, that makes it <laughs> It's like, so sometimes labeled the mad midwife, mad, nah, the mad midwife. That's the, the begins the theory of Jill the Ripper. Sorry, I preferred the mad midwife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I just I need a drink. I've been talking for so goddamn long. <laughs> the fact that all London was looking for Jack the Ripper, a man, would allow a female murderer to walk the streets of Whitechapel with considerably less fear of capture or discovery. Second, a midwife would be perfectly common to be seen at all hours of the night. Third, any presence of blood on her clothing would be immediately discarded as a result of her work. Finally, Based on the evidence pointing to an anatomically educated murderer, a midwife, as we just said, would have anatomical knowledge. Some believe the murderer possessed. Um, let's see. What sort of person was it that could move about at night without arousing the suspicions of his own household or other people that he might have met? Who could walk the streets in bloodstained clothing without arousing too much comment? Who would have been the elementary knowledge and skill to have committed the mutilations? Who could have found who could have been found by the body and yet given a satisfactory alibi for being there? Or is that like saying a black man did it? <laughs> no, I feel like it was the Jews is a bit like saying oh, no. I'm not making this crime up, it was two black guys. I feel like this is a um... Well they said, Well, why would a midwife go around doing that? Uh, or possibly an abortionist. So the theory is that they might have been betrayed by a married woman whom she had tried to help and sent to prison. As a result, this was her way of revenge on her own sex. Nah, no. I don't know. No. <laughs> Specifically, Stuart seems to have been focused on the fact that a midwife would have been able to almost instantly produce unconsciousness particularly in persons given to drink by a method frequently used on patients in those days by midwives who practice among the extremely poor. Vulcan death crap. <laughs> 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 they were, um, no, they knocked them out by exerting pressure on the pressure points. I wish I knew where they were and that would yeah, be quite yeah. handy. Also, I'm intrigued that at that point in time they taught all midwives to pressure points like just in case they knock someone unconscious. <laughs> It would have been good for like the women who lived in Whitechapel to know about in case yes. you know they got attacked by some sort of mad guy in a, an apron or leather apron. Um, it's mm, okay. So he said someone said that Mary Kelly was three months pregnant at the time of her death. I don't know if that's true. She could barely afford her lodgings, let alone a baby. So according to Stuart, she decided to terminate her pregnancy. Claims that the murder was called in to abort the baby. The murderer was called in to abort the baby and killed Kelly once she was admitted into the room, later burning her blood-soaked crow. Now this is then mm. two black men did it territory because, yeah, it's yeah. like, we all know that some women perform abortions. They are monsters. They are one of the same <laughs> yeah. that, that's like, It's a pro-lifer argument. your abortion went wrong because you were forced to do it back street, uh, imagine the midwife might abandon your body. I don't think she'd cut you open and stab mm. you in the eyelids. That seems like overkill. Also, it's mentioned that one of the victims, um, who, like Nichols, Mary Nichols, Bonnet, which she mentioned in her now famous line to her landlord, I'll soon get my DOS money, see what a jolly bonnet I've got now, was given to her by the mad midwife as a gift. He claims that if a man had given it to her, she would have boasted of the fact. 
no, I don't understand what he means by that. What? That again is just like, yeah, it must be an abortionist because they're evil. And if a gentleman caller had given her the bonnet, she'd have been like, oh, Jenna gave me this. But because she was covering it up, it must be an abortionist because they're evil. Nah, it's sexism. It's sexism gone rampant. Burn mm -hmm. So they've also said, why would they remove the organs from the victims? Yeah. He claimed, Stuart claimed that she would have to have sufficient anatomical knowledge to do so and that it was an obvious ploy to direct attention away from her. The particular mutilations practiced by the killer held a psychological fascination and horror for all women and as a result, physiological reactions took place among women and in places remote from the scenes of the murders. No, cutting off one <laughs> hand and removing a scarf from each scene as a way to throw attention off it being a botched abortion. Cutting somebody from vag to boobs, peeling them open, <laughs> hacking bits of them off, piling them up in a unit, throwing other bits of them over the cells and then stabbing them in the eyelids is not a way to throw somebody off it being a botched abortion. <laughs> He also believes that the reason why Mary Kelly was unclothed and her clothes were neatly folded on a nearby chair, the prostitute had stripped for a routine medical abortion from the midwife she had contracted, hence the midwife struck upon her unsuspecting victim. Having thus set the stage for the character of his killer, Stuart continued his assertions by suggesting that the modus operandi between his mad midwife, midwife, keep saying that, <laughs> she is the mad midwife, and a Mrs. Mary Piercy were similar. So there's an actual woman called Mrs. Mary Piercy who he thinks might be Jill the Ripper. Has she, did she this is her hair. Well, yeah, she was hung. So um, Mary Piercy. She does have scary eyes. Well, yeah, she does look mental, but she could just be unfortunate looking. I don't know. Can't judge a book by their cover, can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> can't judge these guys by their eyes. Um, so Mary Pierce had stabbed her lover's wife and child to death and cut their throats, later wheeling the bodies into a secluded street. These crimes were committed in of October 1890. That was after the Jack the Ripper victims. Because they took place in 1888. Um, Stuart claimed that there were two striking similarities. First, the savage throat cutting. And second, the modus operandi of killing in private and then dumping the body in a public place, which would explain why there were no witnesses who heard any ripper victims scream. Mary Piercy was described by Sir Melville McNaughton, or McNaughton. He wrote, I have never seen a woman of stronger physique her nerves were as an iron cast as her body. <laughs> she was executed. <laughs> I know it's so what? She's a strong woman. That doesn't mean she's a killer. She was executed at the scaffold on December 23rd, 1890. But before the execution, she arranged to place an advertisement in the Madrid newspapers, which read m.e.c.p. Last wish of m.e.w. Have not betrayed. I have no idea what she could mean by that. No. Another interesting point. Stuart disregarded Elizabeth Stride as a victim, claiming the press jumped hastily to that conclusion due to the murder of Eddowes on the same night. He cites the fact that her throat was cut from left to right, whereas the other victims' were throats were slashed from right to left. Following his lead, this leaves four victims and four strikingly interesting dates. Why? 
I don't get it. Surely that means that he actually just thinks that she killed her husband's lover and the other woman that was thought to be the unfinished one, which she then makes even less sense. Why would she just have randomly killed one other woman? She was bored. Mm, I mean, I think Mary Pierce probably did commit those crimes, but I don't think she's Jack the Ripper. No. I, I like the theory. I like the theory about like possibly being a midwife or a woman covering her tracks by wearing the victim's clothes and and you wouldn't think it would be a woman, but I just don't think it is. I buy more into what you said that maybe if people saw them wearing their clothes it was because it was like it a slight be. guy who was wearing yeah, their maybe. clothes. Also she's an absolute tank, so <laughs> yeah. stand out as much as a like large mm-hmm. guy wearing the clothes. Weirdly one of the um Suspects is Lewis Carroll of Alice in Wonderland fame. I don't know where they're getting that from. Maybe because he was a bit of a weirdo at the time. He was a non-weirdo. Like if there was lots of murders now, somebody might be like, probably He had alibis. He wasn't around at the time when, um, I think he was a bit of a pedo, Lewis Carroll. And by Jeff, I think yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah, but I don't think he was a ripper. Prince Albert Victor is uh, one of the suspects, which is uh, Queen Victoria's grandson. Um, do you want me to look into him and see what we what they say about him? <laughs> There's so many, right? Um, There's one that's really high. Prince Eddie. Okay. Well, Eddie was born in 1864 to Prince Albert Edward, known as Bertie, and son to Queen Victoria. He would later go on to become King Edward the Seventh, and then Roman numerals, <laughs> and Princess Alexandria. He was well known by the English public and not highly respected by many of the lower and some of the upper classes. He had a reputation for being a ladies' man and was rumoured to have been a party to many a scandal that was hushed up by the palace. Princess Alexandra, on the other hand, was an equivalent to today's Princess Di in that she was much loved by the public, who had a great sympathy for having put up with the antics of her husband. I mean, this her husband actually... Um, famously had commissioned a sex chair just to sex chair because he was quite a big lad so it was to basically um, take the weight of him banging whatever prostitute <laughs> mistress he had at the time oh. it was, yeah. yeah so Eddie was his <laughs> child um, so they've said by most reports Eddie was a slow child um, and grew up to be a rather dull adult even his nearest and dearest were naturally bent on making the best of poor Prince Eddie, could not bring themselves to use more positive terms. <laughs> he was certainly dear, good, kind and considerate, but he was also backward and utterly listless. That doesn't fit the profile of mm. female, does it? Might do, because you know how like some people like are treated shit by their parents and disrespected and like maybe you said like the uh he might be a bit of an incel. Mm, true. Like the like, I thought this yeah. was not the Zodiac really was. I mean, but important. I think Prince Eddie wasn't. And I think he did bang quite a lot of people. <laughs> he, he, was he it a was, bike one? I don't know. Like, there was rumours that he was gay. There was rumours. I think he was just basically up for a, a party. Up for anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit mean. He was as heedless and aimless as a gleaming goldfish in a crystal bowl. <laughs> They said he was mild, mildly retarded. His intelligence was lower than was expected. That like a of a, yeah, 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 in the past, yeah, in a future monarch, he wasn't considered to be a good future monarch. 
Um, and it's believed that this limited mental ability was one of the reasons why he required a tutor at Cambridge. He was partially deaf, owning to inherited hearing problems for his mum's side of the family. And he had a long, thin neck, which required him to wear long, starch collars and led him to receiving the nickname Collars and Cuffs. What a weird nickname. Sounds <laughs> quite saucy. Also, that sounds made up as well, doesn't it? He had such a long neck that he had to wear special long starch collars. He might. <laughs> so, but wouldn't that exaggerate his long neck? And yeah, sure. Bring more attention more, to it. Sure, Rafi, isn't it? Like, wear a cloak or something? I don't know. Like, I quite like a man with a big like, long, long neck. neck. I don't know why. <laughs> I feel like sometimes if you like see it's a man, elegant like a long, yeah, like a, like a swan mm. with a big Adam's apple. That's what I meant to. Sexy swans. So why did he think that he was linked to Jack the Ripper? Um, it was a theory that came up in 1970 by a Dr. Thomas Dowell published an article in the criminologist called A Solution. It created a sensation by his veiled accusation of Prince Eddie as a killer. He apparently used the private papers of Sir William Gull. That's his surgeon, I think. That's one in, from Hell, who was revealed to be the killer in the film. Um, it's his primary source material, and it was these papers which led him to devise his theory. Throughout his article, the killer is referred to as S, but there is enough internal evidence to identify Eddie as his chief culprit. So according to Still, Eddie was suffering from syphilis contracted during a shore party in the West Indies, and that this infection drove Eddie insane and compelled him to commit the murders. The theory is that the royal family knew Eddie was the murderer, Definitely, and after the second murder, and possibly even after the first, Eddie's doctor in this matter was supposedly Sir William Gull, who informed Bertie that his son was dying of syphilitic infection. Apparently, no attempt was made to restrain Eddie until after the double event, when he was bundled away in restraints to a private mental hospital. Eddie then escaped to carry out the Kelly murder, after which he was again locked away and died. Not a flu in 1892 is claimed, but of the softening of the brain in a private mental hospital in Sandringham. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that they would do that. Because, no, because didn't they do that already to, like, later on, you know, in The Crown? I think Yasmin mentioned this, that the Queen's cousins were mentally retarded yes. and they had them away in an institution. I don't think it's unthinkable that the royal family would do any of those things, mm. but also there's literally no evidence in there. It's just yeah. something this guy's made up. Like, <laughs> like there's, there's no evidence in any of that. It's all just stuff that he's randomly decided. It's not even like this would explain this. Well, they're saying like, that... They said this, but it was actually that. They said this, but it was actually that. Yeah, because they're saying this. that the royal records reveal that Eddie wasn't even in London on the important murder dates. And it, it gives you a list of where he was on the dates of the murders about why it couldn't have been him. But I think people just love a sensation like, like yeah. a sensational story like that. Um, yeah, there's loads more on Prince Eddie. But we'll be here all night. You can look into it yourself. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right, well, let's go back. Who was the guy that you thought was quite hot? Who's that? He's fit. This guy? Yeah. James Kelly. James Kelly. Right, right, who the fuck's James Kelly, right? He's one of the suspects. So, April 20th, 1860, James Kelly, born in Preston, Lancashire, the illegitimate son of 15-year-old Sarah Kelly. After the birth, Sarah returns to Liverpool, leaving James in the care of her mother, Teresa. James never meets his mother. 1870, Sarah Kelly marries master mariner John Allen. 1873, James Kelly leaves school and begins an apprenticeship as an upholsterer. 
May 16th, 18. Why are we? Why are we getting this? Like, what's like this like going to do? I don't know. Yeah. This is like this is like his Tinder profit. Yeah. Isn't it? Good with his hands, raised by his grand. He's good at making like nice furniture. In May 16th, 1874, John Allen dies in Peru, leaving Sarah Kelly a house and a share in a cargo ship. Sarah falls to pieces and her health begins to deteriorate. July 29th, 1874, Sarah Kelly dies. In her will, she leaves James a small fortune of over 25000 to be held in trust for him until his 25th birthday. 1875, Teresa Kelly tells James about his history and his inheritance. It's first... It is the first time he learns that the woman he fought was his mother is really his grandmother. Oh, God. I mean, I'm liking that story. It's interesting. It's like a soap opera. He is withdrawn from his apprenticeship and sent to Dr. Robert Herworth's Commercial Academy in New Brighton to learn bookkeeping and clerical skills. 1876, Teresa Kelly dies. I wish he kept doing a poster. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, so what? His mum turned out to be his gran. I know a guy whose mum was his gran, and he just always referred to her as his mum, so yeah. it doesn't really matter who brings you up. Eighteen seventy seven, James finishes his education and takes a job in Liverpool with Isaac I was gonna say Isaac Hayes, but that wouldn't be right. <laughs> <laughs> Shaft. <laughs> Isaac Hapes Jones, a pawnbroker. He begins to act irrationally and experience mood swings. Well, we all do. Yeah. Late 1878. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark had a bit of a mood swing. He here. just needs some antidepressants. Yeah. To go Unfortunately, they don't think they had those. No, that's true. Same lovely meds back then. They just put you in the nut house. I mean, people were put in the nut house for just novel reading. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we're going to be in the house then, but again, we're both just dead. We're going to be in the house together. Late 1878, James decides to quit his job and return to his previous trade as an upholsterer. Yeah, so there yeah, you yeah, go, yeah. you got your wish. Oh, yourself, he also decides to move to London and oh, applies right. in <laughs> London and applies the administrators <laughs> of his trust fund who agreed to fund the move. On arrival in London, he applies to the East London Upholsterers Trade Society in Shoreditch, I've been there, it's cool, mm-hmm. for work. They agree to help him find a position, but suggest he takes casual work in the meantime. Mm, okay. Early 1879, Kelly takes lodgings at 37 Collingwood Street, Bethnal Green, with the family of fellow upholsterer Walter Lamb. And the company, oh Jesus... Sorry, that was my sister calling. <laughs> <laughs> like, we just turned this down. Right, okay, where were we? Um. <laughs> hey, so he moved in with he Walter Lamb. He moved in with Walter Lamb in the company of Lamb and another friend, John Merritt. A 35-year-old married cab driver, the formerly devout Catholic Kelly learns the delights of hard drinking and paid sex on the back streets of the East End. He is worked. he paying for sex or is he getting paid for no, sex? No, no, he's paying for sex oh. um, and hard drinking. He works at a variety of casual jobs and sweatshops all over the district. Eventually, he decides to try his work, his luck elsewhere. 1879 to 1881. For two years, there are only scant details of Kelly's movements. For at least some time, he is living in Brighton and he spends a period serving abroad. A prod, a board, sorry, an American man of war. I need to get a drink so you carry on reading this. Okay. 
Could you grab me a drink? Yes, I shall. Is an American man worn out a type of jellyfish? No, it's just like a big warship thing. Mm, like I'd like to think he's riding a jellyfish. Uh, where are we? Right, man of war. <laughs> so in the mid of 1881, after he'd finished riding on a man of war, he returns to London and renews his acquaintance with Lamb and Merritt. He works at a variety of casual jobs and sometimes serves on the continental cargo ships. His drinking becomes heavier than ever and most evenings are spent around Whitechapel and Spitalfields. In December 1881, a few weeks before Christmas, he meets Sarah Berger and he quickly becomes enamoured with her. Oh. <laughs> I thought we were going to get together, but no. Sarah takes... <laughs> Sarah's stolen my man. Skank. Sarah takes him home to meet her family and the pair become an item. Do you know what, though? If it helps him turn his life around, I'm happy for them. Sarah's parents think of him as a serious and religious young man with good prospects. I mean, technically, he is religious and... Wait, Mark, what am I missing? Did he marry abroad? Uh, so he's met a woman called Sarah. She's introduced him to her family. They really like him, but it says they... Like, it's basically implying they believe them to be religious and oh. to have good prospects, but like, well, he's good at inherit a shit ton of money and he is a Catholic, so technically those things are true. Well, yeah, they are true, yeah. Okay, where are we? Uh, <laughs> where are we? A few weeks. So, yeah, we're going to Christmas. Oh, right. December 1881. This is quite a detailed timeline. Oh, have you? March. Oh, March 1882. Kelly moves into a Bridger's house, a Brider's or a Brider's house. I don't know what that is. At 21 no. Cottage Lane, just off the city road between Shoreditch and Islington, as a lodger. He has to share a room with another man. Oh my God, for save <laughs> us all. <laughs> yeah, he cuts down in his drinking and other activities and spends many evenings in the house with Sarah and her parents. Or does he spend it more with the man and he leaves her to. I think he too is a bicon and, yeah. <laughs> and Lady Love, he doesn't need to drink anymore. Christmas 1882, Kelly and Sarah have become increasingly intimate over Ooh. the year. Ooh. Over the year and after much persistence on his part, she surrenders her virginity to him. Creepy way to write it, but okay. Um, <laughs> the event is a disaster. Despite being <laughs> despite being sexually experienced, Kelly has only slept with low-class prostitutes, and neither one has had any kind of sex education. I don't really understand why is it. Why does that make it a disaster? Well, maybe some sort of like maybe crazy swing from the ceiling's mad bag. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just really shit sex. And, um, despite, oh yeah, and oh, he's not prepared for how different sex with a virgin will be. So maybe he's used to loose women. That's like throwing a sausage down the hallway kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and finds himself unable to penetrate. He's convinced that Sarah has some kind of deformity and she babbles the story of being interfered with by an uncle by way of explanation. This is fucked up. This is fucked up. It's taken a dark turn. Kelly's former erratic behaviour returns after this and he experiences stronger and stronger depressions and mood swings in the following months. He also returns to his former habits in the East End rather than pressing Sarah further. 
so I mean, I know I did say that scan about five minutes ago. Good show. bad for doing that. <laughs> And I feel really sorry for Sarah. I can't believe he's taken such a bad turn for her. Um, February 1883. Fearful that he will lose Sarah, who is growing more distant, he proposes marriage to her. She delays but eventually accepts. Why would you do that? However, in the meantime, Kelly finds he has a venereal disease and fearful of doctors resolves to treat it himself. How? What's he going to do? Uh, April 1st, 1883. Kelly finally lands a permanent job in the upholstery trade, working for John Heron of Four Orchid Buildings at Acton Street, Hagerston. Sarah's family pressure him to set a date for the wedding, although he is reluctant due to his disease. Oh, don't marry him, Sarah. He's got a fucking dodgy dick and he really isn't a good ride. (laughs) (sighs) Good just. No, I just imagine it as like a kind of rotten carrot like thing. Mm. Slimy, green. Uh. (sighs) Okay. Oh dear, it's not going well. There's really many evidence that he's a Jack the Ripper. I know, I don't. Where is this? Yeah, I'm wondering when this is going to like get to the Jack the Ripper stuff. So they keep bringing up that he's got erratic behaviour and he, he's experiencing serious headaches and discharges from his ears. Friday, June the 1st, 1883, Kelly is dismissed from his job again <laughs> as a reason Heron states that he was obviously not right in the head. Kelly has some money from his trust fund and it is decided that the wedding will go ahead. Why doesn't he have all the money from his trust fund? I ask you when you can't possibly know the answer because I've just pointed this out. Maybe he's, only a, maybe he's only got to get permission from the bank to take some of it out so he doesn't, because he's known to be a bit mental, so he doesn't spend it all at once. You know, some people have to have their installments, maybe. Maybe, yeah, that would make sense. Monday, June 4th, 1883, Kelly and Sarah are married at St Luke's Parish Church, Old Street, EC1. On the same day, he obtains a new upholstery job with Cornelius Vincent Smith at Marshall's Yard. Yes! Why is he doing that? He should be on his honeymoon. Costa Regents Park and two miles walk from Cottage Lane. The couple remain at Sarah's parents' house and because of shortness of space, Kelly continues to share a room with the lodger. Is that where he got his venereal disease from? I'm also like because of not shortness of space, but surely they can share a bed now. Yeah, why not? Not couple. because he doesn't. He's scared of virgins. No, that's true. It's believed that <laughs> it's believed that the marriage is never consummated. Yeah, he's terrified of her tight, tight boots. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturday, June the ninth, eighteen eighty-three. Kelly demands Sarah see a doctor about her deformity. I don't think she's deformed at all. I think he just doesn't know. How to, yeah, he doesn't know like what it's like to, I don't know, a proper vagina and not some pure, I don't know. I don't think think there's anything wrong with her. I just think it's him that needs to see the doctor. And obviously, it's a bit rich coming from him saying you need to see a doctor when he won't see one himself for his like. <laughs> he's, rotten, he's rotten cock. <laughs> so yeah, Sarah turns to her parents and her father, John Brader, 
confronts Kelly, who pours out to him the whole tale of their sexual problems and the supposed abuse by an uncle. Stunned by this, Mr. Bridger agrees that Sarah should see a doctor, but Kelly broods on the incident the whole weekend. Do you still fancy this guy, Mark? No, I've gone off. I've been fancying the start of this story. Monday, June 11th, 1883, Kelly travels to Liverpool and asks the fund trustees for money so that he and Sarah can set up a house together. He's successful and returns the same day. You're right. Sunday, June 17th, 1883. When cleaning the room Kelly shares, Mrs. Brider finds a syringe and the drugs Kelly is using to treat himself. What is he putting in the syringe? Yeah, well, I know that first um, it was thought that to cure syphilis, if you like stuck mercury in your Jap's eye, oh, it, it was supposed to cure it, but that would kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he was doing that though, or maybe he was going to kill him prostitutes and then using that to cure his dick, and that's why they think he's Jack the Ripper. Well, let's see if my theory plans out. Okay. <laughs> um, so she and Sarah tackle him, and after initially denying that they are his, he flies into a rage and accuses Sarah of being a prostitute and infecting him, and accuses them both of tricking him into marriage to get their hands on his inheritance. Like, how can she have infected him when he never when even he's never, he's never shagged her? He's deranged. Monday, June 18th, 1883, it's Sarah's birthday. Filled with remorse at his outburst of the night before Kelly, uh, of the night before, Kelly resolves to take her out on their return from work. Kelly waits for her, but she does not return until nine o'clock, over an hour later than usual. Ignoring Kelly, she goes into the parlour and tells her mother she is unwell. Kelly runs into the parlour and drags Sarah into the kitchen, screaming abuse at her. Then he pulls a carving knife from the kitchen drawer and threatens to stab her unless she tells him where she has been. She claims to have what? How do we know that he was full of remorse if that's his actions? <laughs> fucks up! Full of remorse, he decks her and drags her through the house with a knife. Standard, that's what I do when I'm feeling bad. I mean, that's a, a real good way to apologise for being abusive to your wife. Yeah, some to be more some level of victim blaming. <laughs> Kelly calms down instantly and collapses in a chair, crying. Oh, they gave him um, quin- quinine. Must be some sort of sensitive or whatever. Is that not the I don't know. thing that you get in the... Tonic water? It can't be. Is it? I don't, I don't, it's, I don't, it's, I don't, it's, I don't it's, 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 Mrs. Brider asks where she is and he tells her that he saw her on the other side of the road and does not cross to her. Then he snaps at her that no woman will ever master him and he goes out again. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really not into it anymore. (laughs) 20 minutes later, they return together and on entering, Sarah pulls away from him and locks herself in her room. Kelly flies into a rage and breaks the door down. When Mrs. Brider arrives, Kelly is yelling, uh, at Sarah that she is a whore or a whore. <laughs> Sarah replies that she no longer wants to live with him or ever see him again. Once again, Kelly calms down instantly and begs forgiveness, but Sarah will not relent this time. Good for you, girl. Yeah, girl. Okay. Yeah. Kelly flies into her rage once more, and this time he throws her to the floor, pulls a pen knife from his pocket, and plunges it into her neck. Oh, oh shit. 
He then begins digging away with the knife as if trying to burrow deeper and deeper. Mrs. Brader tries to drag him off by the hair and he turns on her, picks her up and throws her across the room. Sorry, I'm laughing at that. I just made me think of Hulk or something. She's very, very small. Then he runs off and shuts himself into his bedroom. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Mrs. Brider runs into the street screaming for help after being slammed against a wall. Within minutes, the police and a doctor arrive. And a doctor who was shitting himself. Two badges and a doctor decides. Sarah's actually still alive. Oh, good. Sarah is taken to St. Bartholomew's his hospital and Kelly's arrested and taken to Old Street Police Station. Friday, June 22nd, 1883, Kelly is charged with attempted murder at Clerkenwell Police Court. He is remanded in custody for a week. Saturday, June 23rd, 1883, Kelly is taken to hospital by Inspector Maynard, where Sarah's statement is taken in his presence. Sunday, June 24th, 1883, Kelly writes a letter to Sarah begging for her forgiveness. Sorry, I, I, I shoved a pen knife into your neck and dug it out. <laughs> Do you forgive me? Do you fancy going out for dinner long? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't. No the same. will ever rule me. <laughs> At ten thirty that evening, oh shit, Sarah dies oh, from God. her injuries. Oh, so it's murder now. Yeah, Monday, twenty June twenty fifth, eighteen eighty three. Kelly is charged with murder. First day, June twenty eighth, eighteen eighty three. The first hearing at Clerkenwell Police Court. Kelly is formally charged and pleads insanity. He, well, I think it's a bit. Yeah, a I think he's a person, but also think he might be insane. Nah. He's remanded again for a week to allow the inquest on Sarah to take place. The inquest returns a verdict of willful murder against him and a trial date is set. Wednesday, August 1st, 1883, the trial is held at the Old Bailey. Kelly pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. Sarah's statement is read to the court. A coachman named Frederick Hammond testified to seeing Kelly threaten Sarah in the street shortly after nine that evening. Dr Oliver Treadwell of Clerkenwell Prison testifies to having examined Kelly and found him to be sane. The jury then returned a guilty verdict and Kelly is sentenced to be hanged. Thursday, August 2nd, 1883, Kelly's lawyers lodge a petition of clemency. Among the signatories are Mr. and Mrs. Brader. What? What? <laughs> the woman he threw a cloth across the fucking room. Okay, Friday, August 3rd, 1883, the Home Secretary refuses clemency and the execution is set for August 20th. Kelly refuses to believe that he will be hanged, saying that God still has a mission in mind for him. Tuesday, August 7th, Maybe he is insane because of his like, syphilis, because yeah. that does make you mental. Kelly is examined by Dr. W. Orange, superintendent of Broadmoor, who reports that, in his opinion, Kelly is of defective mental capacity. Friday, August 17th, 1883, Kelly is certified insane and his sentence is commuted. He's sentenced to be held in a maximum security mental institution during Her Majesty's pleasure. I mean, I'd probably rather be hung as well, yeah. Friday, August 24th, 1883, Kelly arrives at Broadmoor to begin his sentence. Now, Broadmoor is quite a famous place because it's also where another ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, ripper ended up. He was put in Broadmoor because they said he was insane 
rather than an actual fucking murdering bastard. But recently, I think he's dead now, he died recently, but they moved him from Broadmoor into a standard like men's jail because what he'd been cured all of a sudden. And someone we know who we went to school with worked in Broadmoor and oh, worked with Jack yeah, the Ripper. Yeah. She said that. it was horrendous. Like someone broke a chair leg and put it to her neck and stuff. So brave women, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what our conversations with a Ripper were. Um, okay, so 1884, Kelly obtains a violin and begins playing in an asylum band. He's put to work in the asylum garden. 1886, Kelly befriends fellow inmate George Shatton. The two begin to plan an escape. <laughs> they fashion keys from metal found in the asylum garden by observing the keys hanging from the warder's belt. Again, that is the mood of an insane person. Like, I can make Would them out of my own metal look at the shape of them. No, I mean, John Dillinger got out of jail by using a gun shaped. No. A potato shaped in the form of a gun. That makes more sense though, because people might think that's a gun. Yeah, maybe. Like, oh my god, he's got a key, just open the gate. Yeah. He'll get out eventually, we might as well let him leave. <sighs> they should have hung the bastard. Um, I wonder if he, if he got out then. January 23rd, 1888, at 6.30pm, Kelly takes his violin and he and Shatton heard head off, apparently to band practice. In reality, Kelly uses the keys to let himself into the asylum garden. Shatton locks up after him and keeps the keys to make his own escape at a later date. Kelly then climbs the six-foot wall of the garden to freedom. His escape is not noticed until the inmates are called for bed at 7.30. An anonymous note in Kelly's Broadmoor file indicates that John Merritt was seen in the neighbourhood of Broadmoor on the day of the escape. He may have been delivering £5, which Kelly had arranged to be given him from the trust fund, which was to bribe a warder. So the key thing worked. Their keys must have been shite then. They must have been. It must have been like one little shape. It couldn't have been that complicated. Like, like a German TV program. Yeah. Oh, do we open with the triangle key? The <laughs> asylum. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, aside from where official agencies are involved, Kelly's movements from this point are based on his own confession of 1927 and are uncorroborated. So he lived up until 1927. That blows my mind. Yeah. I don't know why when I think of like the 1800s and then 1927, it, it just seems like such a long different like distance, but I suppose it isn't really. You think about it. Yeah, I mean that is okay. weird. It does just seem like so yeah. far away. It seems like like sci-fi to <laughs> me. So Kelly then heads for London by roundabout route to escape detection. The journey takes four days and ends at a lodging house in the docks where he lies for up to a week or more. February 1888. Well, I mean, sorry, we were born in the the 1980s and it's now the 2020s. So that would be the equivalent, Vincent. That's crazy. (laughs) I like the fact that we were born. Does it freak you out that we were born in like the last century? Um, No. Not really, but I do. I don't do, do you see those things that some things pop up like on people's, I don't know, Instagrams or Facebooks or whatever? And it's like, do you realise that it's the same amount of time from this to this as it is from this to this? Yeah. They always freak me out. No, I don't like that either. Yeah. I still think the 90s was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Or the 2000s was 10 years ago. And that's not even the case. No. 
But 20 years ago? Like it. Oh my God. Yeah, that is weird. I think I'd rather have been born in like the year 2000, so then I would stay within that century, not born in one century. I mean, either, like the year 2000 does seem in my head. Like, nice round number. About, like four or five years ago. Not... Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. I was, I was 15, 15 in the year 2000. 14 or 15. That's crazy, man. And now my hips come out <laughs> Oh my god, we're so, like, what has this got to do with Jack the Ripper though? Why have I read all of this? I don't know, but I'm I don't, enjoying it. Right, okay, well, we're nearly, I'm really we're, nearly we're nearly at the end. Um, uh, where did I get to? So, he's gone to London. He's gone to London, right, and then he, he took four days. He was in a lodging house, and the doctor were like, right, okay. So, February 1888, James, James Monroe, head of the Met Police CID, takes a particular interest in the case. You thought he'd be sexy, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get involved, James. Walk away. February, June 1888. Having obtained money from friends, Kelly heads to Liverpool. He walks the whole way to avoid being spotted on public transport. That's a fucking long journey from again, to Liverpool on feet. That, that indicates probable actual insanity. <laughs> he is harboured by relatives for a while. After obtaining more money from friends, he resolves to escape to the continent. He sets off walking again. I thought he was going to For Spain. <laughs> no, I thought he meant he walked all the way to America or something. <laughs> He's supposed to do that. He can't even walk on water. He's up, Jesus. Well, <laughs> he maybe thinks he is. After obtaining more money from friends, um, he resolves to escape to the continent. He sets off walking again to Harwich. Har- Har- where he arranges to work his passage on a ship. He's spotted on the deck by a sharp-eyed policeman and narrowly escapes. He heads Not back. Then. Wait, so then he heads back to London. <laughs> Did he walk all the way back? Arriving sometime before the end of June. Sounds this like he walked all the way back, yeah. This could be a movie. Like, July, December 1888. Kelly provides no details as to his movements until late that year, in November or December. He walks to Dover and obtains passage on a cross-channel steamer to Dieppe. He remains in France for three years, at first hugging the north and northern coast and later heading to Paris. I assume he was literally hugging the coast for three years because he's as mad as a broom. 10th of November 1888, the day after the Mary Kelly murder, detectives raid 21 Cottage Lane and question Mrs Brider as to Kelly's whereabouts. So they, what did they? Yeah, but why would they think? No, I think Mrs. Brider wasn't his mother-in-law. She was just his landlady because he lived at lodgings. The Brider's, oh, okay. the Brider's house. So are they saying that he murdered um, Mary Kelly? Is like it Mary? not a coincidence that he's got the same surname or what? Like before? Yeah, is there some Paris? relation between the two of them? And did they think that was he their first suspect? It sounds like it. 12th of November 1888, someone with the initials CET enters a note in Kelly's Metropolitan Police file suggesting that the detectives investigating the Whitechapel murders should look into what steps have been taken to recapture Kelly. There's too many Kellys here, I'm confused. Yeah. January 1892, he returns to England and obtains £3.10 shillings from friends with which he buys passage on a German steamer. The Zandam to New York via Rotterdam. January 27th, 1896, 
Kelly walks into the British consulate in New Orleans and gives himself up. That's quite a bit of ways. Like, what's what's he been doing between 1892 and 1896? March 18th, 1896, Kelly sets off back to England aboard the SS Capella. The foreign office arranged for him to be met by the authorities when the ship docks in Liverpool. March 26, 1896, the Capella arrives in Liverpool a day early. The authorities have not fought to check. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly waits around for some time to be arrested. He's just standing there like like a confused John Travolta. I mean, going, what? What are they? (laughs) Is he waiting there all day and all night? Uh, No, he doesn't because he gets tired of waiting and he heads off into Liverpool. When the escort party arrived the next day, there was no sign of him. What a fucking farce. Kelly remains in England for a further two or three years, working as a coach trimmer in Guildford, then takes a steamer, the SS Beachdale, to Vancouver. Again, the article was <laughs> completely insane, man. So he gives himself up and agrees to sail back. And yeah, what? Like, Nobody's showing up. I'll just go get a job. Fuck <laughs> 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 back over the water to Vancouver. They're obviously not interested. 1901, Kelly again resolves to give himself up. He tells his story to the British consul in Vancouver, but when the information is communicated back to London, nobody appears interested. (laughs) After waiting three months, Kelly heads back to England under his own steam, but on arrival changes his mind and does not give himself up. It is not known how long he stays this time. He works for some time as a coach trimmer in Goldenham, and is spotted at one point working as an upholsterer again Good in North London. At some point, he returns to America and crosses the Atlantic several more times in the years up until 1927. April 22nd, 1907, Broadmoor officially discharged Kelly on account of the failure of the authorities to recapture him. <laughs> I mean... So it took them about, like, what, 10 years February 11th, 1927, Kelly arrives at the main gate of Broadmoor and asks to be let in. <laughs> Sorry, we've just discharged you now. You're not going back. How many years is this after he escaped? Um, let's go back to the timeline. He escaped in 1888 and he comes back to Broadmoor in 1907 asking to be let in. So basically like 20 years later. Yeah. That's nuts. Even though he's given himself up multiple times. No, no, between. actually, no, it was later than that. It was 1927 he wanted to go back in. So it was, it was much longer. So what's that, like 1888. Years later? Yeah. 40, so he just tried to give himself up multiple times in 40 years later. He basically gives up and just walks into the prison and is like, hello. <laughs> he's profoundly deaf and in poor physical condition. He is readmitted and remains there the rest of his life. Maybe he's just like, I'm sick of going back and forth now. I want a retirement home yeah, to stay in. Yeah, be looked after. <sighs> okay, September 17th. So he didn't last long in Broadmoor. So from February 11th, 1927 to September 17th, 1929. Oh, well, that's like, what, a couple of years? He, yeah, he dies. Just over two years. Yeah. And he obviously wasn't in a very good state when he no. So finally, after all that, the reasons for suspecting Kelly is Jack the Ripper, in case you forgot what this podcast was about. I mean, I really enjoyed that story. It's not... <laughs> what was his first name again? Was it James? James... It's not like the James Kelly show right now, but it feels like it is. We should do James yeah. Kelly just every week. That's just <laughs> <talk about> that. <laughs> so 
he was, um, the reason why they suspect he might be the Ripper, he was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, but that doesn't mean just because you've got schizophrenia doesn't mean you go around mutilating prostitutes. I have to stress that fact. He has shown himself capable of murder with a knife, so are lots of people. His reasons for murdering... So everyone in the digger. Basically, everyone in the digger, yeah. (laughs) His reasons for murdering his wife were his belief that she was a prostitute and infected him with VD. Having been disavowed of this idea in Broadmoor, he would almost certainly have realised that the real source of his infection was the prostitutes of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, with whom he had consorted. No, he murdered his wife because she wouldn't do what he said, and he didn't want a woman to be in charge of him. He said that. Yeah, I he did. He at her, but it was because he didn't want a woman to be in charge of his movements because he was a lunatic. Yeah, well, they're and saying that... in the very offensive way that we would describe someone who's a dickhead and not because he had schizophrenia. Hmm. The re, uh, so they're saying that it was revenge. Again, it's always revenge against sex workers for giving him a venereal disease, for destroying his life. But he destroyed his own life. Yeah. The raid on 21 Cottage Lane on 10th November 1888 shows that at least someone in the Met Police must have suspected him. Reasons against suspecting Kelly. His movements after his escape from Broadmoor cannot be verified. There is no proof he was in London in late 1888. There are also no other murders which can be tied in with his movements between then and 1927. So I just read all of that just for to prove that I don't think he was the Ripper. <laughs> I don't think any of the suspects we've discussed so far are the Ripper. Mm. Is there anyone that you and your research have been like, convinced is most likely the Ripper? Um, I think my arms when I said that there, I can do the proper. Like, not really, to be fair. It could be any one of these cunts. Um, he looks Chinese, but I don't think he is. Who are these triplets? Where? In here. That's the royal conspiracy. Dr. Pidochenko. <laughs> and again, another high-profile member of the world. <laughs> Francis Tumblety, I've heard of. He was a doctor they suspected could be the Ripper. Because with James Kelly, he doesn't seem to... Where would his anatomical skills, like knowledge, come yeah. from? Do you get that from upholstery? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Unless he's treating the women like they were chairs. My and dad's a trained upholsterer. Is he? I've never seen him try to gut a woman, but I have seen him try to gut a fish. <laughs> Um, there was a guy, Aaron, no, is it Aaron Kaminsky? Um, oh, I don't know if he's on this list. Or Severin Kowalski? No, oh, Walter Sicker. Um, no, I think it's on one of these ones. Kowalski, um, yeah, close to whiskey, yeah. How do you say that? Is it like a Polish thing? I want to say close to whiskey, but also, uh, um, teach a kid with an Eastern European mm. name and I literally can't, I try to get him to teach me to say his name all the time and it's not like he keeps saying to me the main thing. Well, he's a Polish guy. Um, yes, yeah, no, I don't know. No, I don't think it was him. I don't know, to be honest. I don't think anyone's ever going to know and that's a sad thing about it. Like, it's t- t- too much time has passed yeah. now for, I think it was this guy, um, Surin. Kolsolsky. Um he was also later known as George Chapman, he changed his name. They said they think he might be the most likely to have actually been the Ripper 
because he said he matched the description to the killer, but how can that be? Because there's so many different yeah, descriptions of the killer. Like the killer I can't possibly know. Because sometimes people say he was like a tall, dark man, or he was shabbily chic, shabby chic, <laughs> shabby chic. <laughs> <laughs> or some say he was fair. So I mean, that that just doesn't really um, wash with me. They've said of Equal Importance, he was actually known to have been a serial killer, although that happens to be simultaneously one of the biggest flaws in the argument, is um, Cole Solsky became known as the Butter Poisoner. As the name suggests, he did away with victims by poisoning them, not slashing their throats and mutilating them. So, mm, yeah. nah. Other close point to him as a killer, for one, he was in Whitechapel area during what became known as the Autumn of Terror in 1888. The end of Jack the Ripper's reign, discounting later killings, which have never been definitively linked to him, also coincided with Klosowski's moving to America. In his early years, he was a surgeon's apprentice. Um, he had diligent or exemplary conduct, studied with zeal the science of surgery. Future killer would finish his studies at the hospital of Praga and Warsaw, Poland, Later arriving in London sometime between 1887 and 1888, in short, he had significant knowledge of human anatomy. Rather than working in the medical field, he found employment in barber shops upon his arrival in England. Coincidentally or not, two years after the Ripper murders, he wound up working at the establishment on the corner of Whitechapel High Street, George Yard, mere yards from where Martha Tabram, a possible six Ripper victim, was butchered. What do you mean chronologically being his first? His first victim, maybe? I don't know. So How could she be a sex victim <clears throat> and the first victim chronologically? So does it mean that she's both suspected to be the sex victim of Jack Ripper and the first victim of that Wolowski guy? Wolowski guy, maybe? Then we only know about his victims after her for definite and we only know about the Ripper's victims prior to her for definite. Maybe. It's weird because he said he'd left behind his only wife um, after moving to London, only to marry another woman, Lucy Badersky, in 1889. When his first wife discovered this, she travelled to London to expose his infidelity and force Badersky out. Instead, the three lived together for a time before his first wife returned defeated to Poland. Left with Badersky, the pair crossed over to America in 1891, settling in New Jersey. His married life deteriorated. He soon threatened to kill Badersky and cover up the murder. She then fled back to England while um, Kozlov... How do you... Kozlov... 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 I hate Polish names. Took up with Annie Chapman. But isn't Annie Chapman one of the victims of Jack the Ripper? Or is that just a coincidence that he's married to one of someone? Yeah. As, I mean, that does sound like... Taking on an alias of George Chapman as a result. As George Chapman, he took in a string of mistresses. Annie Chapman, pregnant with his child, left three others he murdered. But he murdered them by poisoning them. So... Um, how does that make him the fucking ripper? I don't think so. But is, so was his common law wife, if you want, his third wife, one of the victims of the ripper? No, she just happened to be, had the same name. Right. Because he moved to America by that point and married Danny Chapman, unless she came back from the dead and moved over America <laughs> with him. I don't think so. None other than Scotland Yard Inspector Frederick Aberline believed Chapman 
Kowalski to be Jack the Ripper going on record in the early 1900s. For one, he had interviewed Lucy Baduski, who told him Kowalski often used to go out at night for hours at a stretch. As well, he was notoriously violent with his partners and his victims had all been women. You know what, though? What? He was hanged. When found out who the Golden State Killer was, it turned out that I can't remember which other two serial killers he was as well, but he was basically three different serial killers. And the so reason he changed that he didn't these, them together is because he changed, he changed the way he killed his method. people. Mm, yeah, I suppose, I mean, they argue, could he have changed his modus operandi from arriving in America and became Jack the Poisoner instead of Jack the Ripper? I suppose it's I'm like... interesting in the middle one, that mm, like, it could have been him or it could have been Jack the Ripper, because, like, what... I wonder what it was with that one that could that seemed to be what that seemed to imply should be a ripper victim, but also seemed to imply there should be a yeah. Ronnie Chapman's one of the victims. I mean, that's. I mean, would that not be a bit fucked up? I mean, maybe he didn't know her name was Annie Chapman. It's just a weird coincidence that he goes to America and marries a woman. Like, does he marry a woman? Does he? No, it was like he lived with her. Yeah, basically, he took her name. He took her name. Actually, that's weird. That is really strange, though. That's why I was confused, like taking on the, like banging a woman who's got the same name as one of his victims if he was a ripper. Was that so he's still in America at that point? Was yeah, that he was in America. Story, yeah. And he was hung in America as a murderer because he was a poisoner. I think that's something that, like, so then, you know, do. yeah, but how come, right? Okay, well, does that not make the police in London really stupid then? Because, like, it's easier to catch him for poisoning women and he got caught in America and hung but they couldn't catch him in London or was it just because it took place at a so short a time that he managed to escape over to America and then got caught there? I just, I don't know. No. But he's... I feel like of everyone we've discussed he seems the most likely. Possibly, but there's other, there's so many other suspects that this, this podcast is going to be like, I mean it's nearly two hours as it is, it, it could because be like, like a, well, we could do another podcast where we can go over more suspects of the Ripper if you want. I don't know. Well, you've you've looked through it. Is there? Yeah, there's loads. Not is there more, but like. Yeah, there is. There's loads more that you could discuss. Maybe we should leave it for another time then. Oh, by the way, have you got your list? Yeah, I've got a photo of it. Okay, right. Um. Yeah, I think we spent quite a lot of time on that James Kelly guy. I mean, as interesting as it was, it didn't really... Yeah, I mean, there's no way, like, it didn't really seem no, like it was him I mean, at all, but it was. I mean, from what I can conclude from him is that he was just a bit crazy, and it was probably due to his venereal disease, and he probably was a bit mental beforehand, but I don't think that he's a killer. No. No. I but I'm think. glad we learned about it. Like, thought it was, it was really interesting. life, I don't yeah. <laughs> I would actually like to watch that as, like, a TV serial yeah. or something. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make that. Okay, right. What number am I choosing? Uh, 1 to 19. I'm going to pick 18. 18 is uh, one of Yazzie's ones, which is Under the Sea. I don't know if she... Under the Sea. I don't think she meant as in a Disney reference. I don't know whether she meant things crept it under the sea, lost its size under the sea. Oh, I, I don't know. know. That's, really, that's really vague. I feel like we have to message Yaz to get her to expand on that Under the Sea. episode on it. Well, let's just look at various things like myths that are under the sea. The sea. <laughs> <laughs> and there's loads of seas about. So, what is there seven seas? I think maybe 
Yeah, because did Jazz not say? I think when she was talking mm. about it, she said if we did it, she'd want to do mermaids. So that seems like it's just oh. general, like under I the same type of. Oh, she did already do mermaids. I don't know whether Yasmin's going to be with us next week. I don't think she is, but it's fine. We can do as you say. There's lots of stuff all right under the sea. Under the sea that we can talk about. I mean, it scares me. Deep bodies of water. Yeah. Do you not think about that? Like how deep the sea or the ocean is. I mean, yeah, Loch Ness is deep enough. I mean, that's scary. That's so deep that a big fucking monster can potentially live under, or more than one could live under like there. You wouldn't be able to see it. You can't clearly see how far the down it is. I don't know if you don't think it's not so much that I could do it if I could see the shoreline. But it's the thought of being stuck in the ocean or the sea also with absolutely fun. nothing else around you. And there's no way you can swim for safety. So bobbing about in the middle of the ocean, even on a raft, is scary because that's like the other stuff in the scarier than the sea, I think. It's probably why I don't really want to go on a cruise. Yeah. Plus, cruises suck. Mm. Right. Well, thanks very much for listening to this epically long episode <laughs> of the Crystal Meth Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and listen to us next time when we talk about under the sea. Bye. Say bye, Mark. Thank you.